I've seen like three movies in the past two days. So I was being treated to a series of good trailers and then an equal number of really bad trailers, some of which just spoiled the thing entirely. Like there's this one, um, it's called Aftermath with Kira Knightley, Jason Clark, and Alexander Skarsgård. It's coming out in, I don't know, February or something. And they literally run through the entire plot in the course of the trailer. Not that that's a new thing, that that's never happened, but it's so egregious in this trailer. I was just uh, uh, beside myself watching it. I'm like, oh, okay. You guys obviously do not care about uh, spoiling this entire thing in one shot. Well, based on that cast, I don't think anyone's going to see it anyway. Nah, I think it's something that like, it looks like the kind of thing that um, some random production companies kind of banded together to make and uh, Sony is just distributing out of the goodness of their heart <laughs> to kind of like get it off the shelf, essentially. <laughs> That's kind of harsh. But none of those actors really sell movies anymore. Like they're not a huge, huge draw these days. No, definitely not. And maybe Alexander Skarsgård, his career is probably like flying the highest out of all of them. But even then he's like... Well, wasn't Tarzan his, your, like meant to be his big thing? And that never happened. Yeah, so. you could say that. I mean, uh, he... I think he's still got a ways to go before he's really like a superstar. Um, he's got his own his own small following from uh, the stuff that he used to do on like uh, True Blood, I think was his big breakout. So like yes. any any fans of True Blood will obviously be ride or die with him. Um, but yeah, I, I can never see it. I, I don't think I see it. I don't think he'll ever be that star. No, maybe not. I don't know. But uh, anyway, of the of the three of them, he's probably the biggest draw for an otherwise like pretty tepid looking movie. Welcome to episode 40 of the Extra Buttery podcast, the final episode of the year 2018. Thanks for being with us over the course of this year. And to close things out, we've got uh, we've got a pretty pretty decent rundown of stuff to uh, cover. We're going to be talking about some new trailers that have hit uh, in the past uh, couple of days, including uh, Hellboy, Men in Black International. I'm uh, going to touch on uh, the Netflix exclusive that uh, hit the platform a little while back, uh, Ballad of Buster Scruggs from the Coen brothers. And of course, uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And then we'll also do a quick rundown of the uh, the best movies of 2018 that uh, we've seen so far, um, being that this is being recorded in the uh, the third week of the month. Uh, we still have a, a few things to catch, the, uh, the big Christmas releases, which we'll uh, update you on in the first episode of the new year. But coming to you from Toronto, my name is Robert Snow, and joining me from Vancouver is my co-host Jason Chen. How's it going? Good. There's supposed to be a storm coming. Tonight. Oh yeah, I, I saw like a hashtag like BC Storm or something on Twitter a little uh, earlier. What's that about? Is it like a, a winter storm or just like a... No, it's, like a, it's usually like a rain or wind storm here. But I don't know, on the way back home from work, it was really nice actually. But uh, it's it's usually like the calm before the storm. So I have like my barbecue on the balcony. I've got a cover on it. And whenever there's like a huge storm or something, the cover actually just gets blown off. And like you lose it off your balcony? No, it just like it lands on the ground and oh, it okay. just, it's there, but it gets blown off all the time, which is like crazy because I like I use the weight to hold it down yeah. to cover it, but it just 
it's so forceful and strong, it just it still blows off. Mother Nature. So I've given up. Mother Nature, man. I mean, uh, you don't mess yeah, with Yeah, don't mess with Mother Nature. Really. Yeah. Oh, but uh, seeing that I can't segue from that very, very easily, um, I really want to talk about the Hellboy trailer um, because mm. it dropped, I guess, uh, last night sometime. We're the line in the sand. We fight against the forces of darkness. This is it. We're expecting a sign that says secret headquarters. Oi. I need some ID, love. Oh, are you serious? Uh, I've been looking forward to this trailer for probably the better part of two years, ever since the the plans for a new movie based on Mike Mignola's uh, graphic novels uh, kind of solidified, you know, that changed hands from Guillermo del Toro and his production team and moved over to Neil Marshall. And uh, they selected uh, David Harbour from Stranger Things uh, for uh, the role of Hellboy. Um, so they're finally at a point where they, you know, they got enough CGI done to uh, to share some stuff in the form of a trailer. And uh, there's been a few people knocking it for like the the pacing in the trailer and the choice of the music that uh, the uh, that's pacing in the in a trailer. Yeah, uh, yeah people like, were <laughs> like, we have pacing rules about trailers now. I, you know what people are like. I mean, they just overanalyze these things so much these days. But uh, but yeah, there's been a few people knocking it or expressing like you know a certain amount of of. Uh, worry that you know this is a just a a bad indicator for the actual full movie i'm not going to go that far but i don't know did did you see it like what did you think i did um i was very shocked at how light it seemed um because if i remember correctly you you know way better than me but are the hellboy comics kind of dark and kind of cynical i think people mentioned that this new hellboy trailer was kind of deadpool-y i did kind of get that I didn't, wasn't really sure what to think of it. I do miss Ron Perlman's Hellboy though, and I'm kind of disappointed we never got that trilogy. But yeah, I mean, they they did have a pretty good idea, f- apparently, from uh, what Ron Perlman and Guillermo del Toro have said over the years. You know, they they had a, a strong idea for a movie to movie to close it out, but then at the same time, I don't know whether the the actual comic arc had concluded at that point. Like for people who know the comics, uh, Mike Mignola, the guy who, who's been running the, the comic who invented Hellboy, he actually brought the story to an end a few years ago. You know, while Hellboy is still, I think he can still appear in some of the spinoff comics that uh, are set in the same universe. His actual main story is finished. They, they had an idea, but it probably would have required a little bit of like artistic liberty uh, because Minula himself hadn't concluded the story yet in the in the source material. But getting back to what you were saying before about uh, the the tone of the trailer or the and the tone of this movie in general, I don't think that the lightheartedness is uh, uh, is that different or that much of a departure from the source material. Because you're right that the books can be very cynical, and uh, there's a lot of like you know being that Hellboy is a creature of hell. The material can be very dark; it can be very violent, uh, pretty spooky, and very much horror tinged. But the character of Hellboy is always cracking wise about it. That's always been in the background of every single book. 
So he's always like, you know, he'll get into a fight with a big monster. He'll get literally like stabbed through the chest and he'll be bleeding out all over the place, but he'll still be finding ways to crack wise about it or to, mm-hmm. or to say stuff like, God damn it, this uh, stupid giant. And then he'll like cut the thing's head off. But I mean, that's, uh, it's definitely always been part of the character. So uh, I think maybe, mm-hmm. maybe the people who were more surprised by, by that tone in the trailer, um, maybe they were more used to the the darker tone of the del Toro movies. Yeah. Um, but the del, the del Toro movies had a lot of jokes in them too. Like, I mean, there, there was a whole sequence in the second one where, yes. um, Hellboy and Abe Sapien get drunk and start uh, singing along to, I think it's like a Barry Manilow song or something. Um, so yeah, it's not, it's not like the, uh, the whole thing is doom and gloom. Yeah. I, I think I just expected something different. I, I get what you're saying about del Toro's Hellboy, but like, as in with any, del toro film there's a bit of like a thriller horror element to it yeah yep that i i think really translated well to the hellboy universe yeah but yeah, yeah I, like you i i can't really i i can't wait to see it. i'm i'm really curious the one thing that i'm uh i'm super excited for and that they're kind of hinting at in this particular trailer is that they're they're gonna go a little bit further uh, down the rabbit hole, as it were, with uh, Hellboy's Destiny. Uh-huh. Um, it, it was something that they hinted at in the first uh, Del Toro movie and got a little bit closer to in the second one. But I think because they really wanted to make that third film, um, they paced it out a little bit more. Uh-huh. But this one seems like it's diving full into you know the the prophecy, essentially, that surrounds the Hellboy character and uh, how all these other characters who seem to know more about his destiny than he does or that he's willing to admit, um, you know, the fact that he's supposed to be the uh, the thing that unlocks the end of the world. The, there's a lot of that imagery baked into that trailer already. So uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's uh, the, the, there's a potential for a really really cool arc there if they do, if it, they right. do it right. Speaking of if they do it right, there's another blast from the past we're getting, and that's Men in Black. There's a moral in MIB. We have a problem in London, Agent M. Come on. The world's not going to save itself. Are you saying that you need me to save the world? Yeah, and I didn't know that they were close enough to release to be already having a trailer out for this, but I don't know. I was I was pleasantly surprised by uh, by what they uh, showed off in this first trailer. Uh, visually, yeah, I, I think is it is very much in line with the other three movies. Tessa Thompson's great. She obviously has a lot of chemistry with Liam Hemsworth going back to Ragnarok. So you can, oh, Chris Hemsworth. Yeah, Chris Hemsworth. Sorry. So so, um, you can definitely see that kind of chemistry going again. Yeah, big time. I am a little skeptical about the plot about them trying to find a mole in the MIB. Um, it, it, It sounds like a very contrived and very unoriginal plot. I'm trying to be interested, but... I get the feeling that Liam Neeson's going to be like the villain somehow or some sort of villainous yeah, role, sinister role. That, and and I don't know. I I am kind of skeptical about how well this will do, although I am rooting for it. It's cool to see Men in Black come back with like a, f- a couple of fresh faces, especially since there's been all sorts of weird rumors mm-hmm. uh, kind of flying around the past couple of years about where they were going to take the franchise uh, now that Will Smith and uh, Tommy Lee Jones have sort of passed on on it yeah well there's um, a crossover movie in the works for a while. yeah like they were gonna do a crossover with uh with the jump street movies of all things which the first time i heard about it i was like what but i i mean it kind of makes I sense it, though 
It's like buddy buddy cop movies. One's about aliens and one's about high school kids. So I guess, but I mean, they've never ever suggested that like aliens could be a part of the Jump Street universe. I mean, to me, it's always read a little bit, you know, just a little like bit a cash grab. Not a cash grab, but just like a weird choice, like or an unexpected choice. Not not that I'm against it. I just it's it's like, can you think of another example of like? two franchises that were completely separate when they were initially imagined then doing a crossover many years later oh yeah ninja turtles with what batman you know like a theatrically released movie oh no but it's happened a lot in the comics like that well sure yeah comics are comics are one thing but like in a big like two big movie franchises that, oh, that were okay. developed independently if you're talking movies i can't really think Think of one, no. Although, I mean, you can kind of maybe argue the Expendables is a crossover of all the action stars in their like actiony best, I guess. I guess, but they're not playing the same characters as they were yeah, in there. But you know, you kind of know that they, they're kind of playing similar characters they played throughout their entire sure. Careers. There's definitely some like fourth wall breaking on the go. No, I think you'd have to go back quite a while in Japan, like when they had the spider-man tv shows they crossed it over with like non-spider-man stuff like they created their own spider-man universe oh yeah like um i watched something recently i think it was from vanity fair one of those uh, uh magazines they uh, they did uh-huh. a kevin smith roundup of uh, okay of all of the spider-man screen adaptations yeah. for the past from the past like 40 years and yeah. uh, he briefly mentioned the Japanese Spider-Man one and how it was kind of its own thing. And, you know, they didn't really stick to the canon. Yeah, there's no Peter Parker. There's no like radioactive spider. I don't even remember what the plot was about. Like shows from Japan back then made no sense whatsoever. There was just kind of a <laughs> delight for kids because they were bright, they were expressive and they had a lot of explosions and stuff. So, yeah, that's the only one I can think of, though. But, yeah, I mean, I, I do think crossovers are are very rare to happen for a reason. That's uh, probably because of IP rights. Oh yeah, that, yeah, that's the thing, right? I mean, you need a you need a kind of a perfect uh, storm of licensing working out and actors being available and all that. Right, and I I mean now that X Men is kind of under the Marvel umbrella, I am interested to see like the X Men with like Iron Man or whatever, you know. Which is like a distinct possibility now when it was like never a possibility before. Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't stay super up to date on the process of that deal being fully approved because I think they've they've yet to yeah, like. I have no idea what's going they've on. They've yet yeah. to like fully get like government approval on the, that size of a merger. But because uh, there's obviously like a lot of anti-competition uh, potential there. But um, yeah, when when all that like all the approvals are done and all the ink is uh, dry and everything, uh, whatever movie that they do that first reunites some of those characters from previously, uh, separated universes is, uh, it's probably going to be a pretty big, uh, pretty big deal. Agreed. But speaking of other weird, um, <laughs> exclusive streamy, <laughs> I'm just not working with the, the segues just aren't working for me today. I don't know what it is. Rob's trying to talk, talk about the new Netflix film, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Yes. I'm trying to get there. I just, it's, it's like getting, it's like getting crushed by my own brain. Uh, no, you, you, you should have gone. Well, X-Men. Okay. Wolverine, Wolverine, desert, desert. Okay. All right. Ballad of Buster Scruggs. <laughs> the wild, wild west, the true wild west where there were no rules. I'm Buster, Buster Scruggs. You're shooting iron work. Appears to do, yes. But yeah, uh, this is a film by Ethan and Joel Cohen. 
Did it ever get a theatrical release? I think it went to... is limited, very limited, wasn't it? I think it? it went to Cannes and maybe to the yes. uh, Berlin Film Festival. Um, uh-huh. But in terms of like a... Got a lot of buzz. In, in terms of like a, an actual theatrical release, I'm pretty sure it didn't get anything. No, but this was released on Netflix, who I think is having a banner year in terms of feature films that they've made. Like, I, I know you hate Bright, and, I, and so does everyone else, yeah. but... I, Bright's a bad example because like... They, you know, they, they invested a lot in it at the end of last year. And then, um, you know, they claimed that it was the best performing one on the platform. But uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, they have had uh, a couple of really standout ones over the course of 2018. Yeah. So this is another one of those. It is a sort of a vignette film where you have five separate stories and they all kind of occur in the same kind of time period. Mm-hmm. Um, they're loosely connected by theme and style but by none of the characters and plot. Have you ever seen um, Four Rooms with Tim Roth? No, I've heard of it's it. It's a very cult. Well, everything he does is cult, but it's a Quentin Tarantino film. And it's it's honestly not great, but you watch it for Tim Roth's performance. Okay. And it's basically the same thing where you have four vignettes and you kind of watch for the acting. And and it's they're essentially short stories that are compiled. And it's very interesting how they did it because... Uh, when they introduce these stories, there's this like um, storybook sequence where there's like this like um, hand that opens up a book and it shows you an image and it kind of zooms in and does that Disney thing yeah. where like it, the picture becomes starts moving and then the movie kind of starts as a transition. Mm-hmm. So I really, really liked it. I'm not so sure it's going to get any awards consideration, but I think the performances are great. I think some of the stories are quite well done. There's one in particular that I love. Um, and we'll get to that. But wh- what did you think? I really liked it. I mean, I have a soft spot for Westerns in general. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm always excited. And like, you know, people try to say that the Western is still dead. And I don't think that's true. You know, it seems like we're still we're still getting like uh, a solid maybe one to two really good Westerns per year. Um, so, you know, any t- and especially any time some favorite directors like the Coen brothers come along and decide to, uh, to make a Western and to play with the format a little bit or, um, you know, reinterpret it in some way. Uh, I'm all for it. So yeah, when, when I heard that they were doing this, I think it, uh, the project started life as a TV show or a limited series or something that they were going to do. That makes sense. And then it got, uh, I don't know if they cut down the individual stories to fit them into more of a, a feature length, uh, runtime or, if it, they were always going to be roughly as long as they are, but either way, like, uh, yeah, there's there's this lovely kind of uh, theme that runs through them of like uh, the unpredictability of the West and uh, the 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 almost like morbid or uh, very dark uh, undercurrent that runs through all of the stories, like mm-hmm. the the proximity everyone has to death and the uh, like the how casual how casually people react to people dying in it is uh, uh, it's kind of mordantly funny. And uh, I don't know, it, it, it was definitely my sense of humor. So I uh, appreciate that. <laughs> what was your favorite? I think I've already told you which one is my favorite, but what was yours? Uh, for me, it was a tie between the, the Nick Nolte one, Nick Nolte and, or no, pff, Nick Nolte. I get, so here's the thing. I get Nick Nolte and Tom Waits mixed up. I don't know how. <laughs> I see I, when Tom Waits grows his beard out, because he doesn't always have a beard like he does in the right. in this movie. Um, but when Tom Waits grows out his beard, to me, he looks like Nick Nolte. 
Um, so <laughs> that one's my favorite. Tom Waits. That one's my favorite yeah. by far. So anyway, the reason, the, yeah, the reason why I, I got them, uh, I brought up Nick Nolte was that I meant, uh, Tom Waits, but that one's like, uh, probably tied with me with the Zoe Kazan one, uh, the wagon train to Oregon. That one was a little frustrating. I like the, the evolution of that. And again, like that, yes. that very dark place that they were not afraid to go to at the end. Uh, because they do build up that story without spoiling anything. They build up that story to be a sort of triumph uh, and and different from the others in the sense that you think it's going to be uh, this sort of romantic, um, uh, heartwarming kind of conclusion. But then it goes in a totally different direction and you're like, oh, OK, I see why they why they included it with these uh, these other ones. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you think of the Liam Neeson one? That was interesting. I that was very morbid. I loved how morbid that one was, actually. And I, I find it interesting when Neeson plays villain characters. I think he's quite good at it, and he yes. he hasn't had a whole lot of opportunities to do it, especially like in the past twenty years. Um, but has he ever really played like an outright hero, though? No, he's not. But he's but he's always played someone who the audience is encouraged to root for. I think. Whether it's an anti-hero or or a straight-up hero, like well, uh, you know. Well, let me let me share a little secret. So, kind of a background. So, the story is about Liam Neeson, who's like, what would you call him? Like a P.T. Barnum type person, right? Yeah, like a traveling um, showman. Yeah, a traveling showman, right? And he has this um, amputee who um, does one-man plays and one-man shows. And uh, there comes a point where the one-man show stops being popular and he's trying to find new ways to make money. Um, and there's this part where, like, it suddenly dawns on him what he what he needs to do to save <laughs> his business, essentially. Yeah. And at that point, I was kind of just like, please do it. Please do it. Because <laughs> the kid, the guy who plays the showman... Um, is actually the same kid who plays Dudley Dursley in the Harry Potter movies. Uh, oh, I knew I'd recognize that yeah, his face I had somewhere. To look yeah, him up. he's thinned. He's thinned down since the uh, the Harry Potter movies, right? But yeah, but he's got that really punchable face, you know. Yeah, and so I kind of um, empathized with Liam Neeson's character more. So the moment you saw that little twinkle in his eye. Oh man, <laughs> I was rooting for that. Yeah. So, and the interesting thing too about that segment is they they do it with the absolute barest minimum of dialogue. Like, yes. I don't even think you see Neeson and the the orator character, you know, the the performer character, actually speak to each other. Other than there's there's one moment where Neeson's character gets drunk uh, by the campfire, and he's basically like he is speaking, but more just in the general direction of the the kid that he. Uh, you know, the, uh, the performer kid, um, but not like they, they don't actually, you, you don't get any sense of their relationship. Like if a Neeson is supposed to be the, the kid's father, or if it, they're just like two guys who were thrust together out of circumstance or whatever. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's, a, it, it kind of proves what you can do with, with those kind of different structures or, or different storytelling methods. Yeah. Or just showing like their relationship, because at one point you see Liam Neeson basically like helping him dress, helping him eat, helping him go to the bathroom and all that stuff. And you, you understand that that performer can't survive without Liam Neeson and he can't survive without him as well. And like you said, but their relationship isn't exactly pure. No, no. Um, and which is kind of reflective of the wild west. The Zoe Kazan one, that one was interesting because as much as I liked the buildup, I didn't necessarily like the story as much as I did with Tom Waits and uh, 
Liam Neeson. I, I think there was a little too much exposition and explaining things than I would have liked. Mm. It took a while to get to the climax. Yeah, I'd agree which with was that. Excellent, yeah. though. Yeah, but the climax is so well done, and the um, and again, like the 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 impact of it is uh, it immediately kind of reveals why why the story was chosen. Uh, alongside the others so it kind of it fits it in all of a sudden also like the most forgettable one for me was the one with james franco where he robs a bank yeah i, I mean i didn't really I liked, get it i liked the what they decided to do with the banker character uh, uh played by what's the guy's name he's in um office space stapler my swing line stapler yeah, that guy. I always forget his name, but he's uh, at, like mm-hmm. he's fascinating to watch in this in the brief time that he's on, uh, in this little segment. Um, and he's kind of like the highlight of that. What, Stephen Root. That was his name. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. But what did you think about the story itself, though? I wasn't quite sure what they were going to go for here. Like it wasn't a very interesting plot. The characters weren't that interesting thematically i wasn't quite sure how it fit in with the rest of the yeah i mean it it seemed like it was basically it was like the simplest expression of the overall theme of the the collection of stories that like you know living in the west is yeah you know sometimes you just escape by the skin of your teeth only to find yourself back in the fireplace again mm-hmm, yeah mm-hmm. It, it didn't it, it didn't do anything that the others uh that the other stories didn't do better I could see I could see how it fit in, but yeah, it, it wasn't the most interesting of the uh, the six. Um, and then, what did you make of the the ending of the final one, uh, the one that takes place mostly in a carriage? Oh yeah, that one was weird. That, actually, you know what? That one's my least favorite. Oh really? I, I like that one. I, I would rank that one sort of towards the middle for me because to me, it's it's almost like the Neeson one in some ways because they don't come right out and tell you anything about what's going on. But what does go on in that episode? Well, I think there's a there's a couple of ways to read it. Like you can either read it as um, the just a basic story about some travelers in a carriage who uh-huh. get into a couple of arguments over on their way to some uh, town that they're all traveling to. Yeah, that was how I read it. Yeah, or the way I read it, and and what and the, especially the way that particular story ends really confirmed this for me. I think they were kind of. It's actually the most supernatural of the six. Because I read it as the coach is actually kind of like the um, the boat in the Greek underworld taking dead people down to, to hell. Yeah, that's and yeah, okay. And how like the the two bounty hunters played uh, played by Brandon Gleason and the the other guy who um, I know from I think he was in Altered Carbon. Mm-hmm. I forget his name, um, but essentially the two bounty hunter characters are like, like the uh, the shepherds of the dead, and they're kind of bringing these misbegotten souls down to hell and yes. uh, scaring them out, of, scaring them out of their uh, their minds on their way down um, with the the way the with the stories that they tell. But uh, but yeah, it they but they don't the Coens don't really come right out and say that that's what is going on. You could also read it as just a totally straightforward like, you know taking place in the real world kind of story. Mm-hmm. Well, I always got the, okay. So the way I read it was that I didn't read like the whole sort of river sticks, he traveling people to the, to the underworld or hell or whatever it was. But I get to get the sense that the three characters that the two bounty hunters were with don't realize that the bounty hunters are kind of referencing them when they're telling their stories. Yeah. And the, and the fact that they're, they're talking about fearing bodies does kind of, implicate the eight the three characters in the three other characters in the carriage um i just i didn't find their conversation particularly poignant or interesting especially for a coen brothers production i don't know 
if the ending opened more questions for me or answered them. I, it felt a little incomplete to me. It felt like it didn't quite know how to end and it just did. Like it, it's a it's a part, it's a small, I guess, portion of the overall trip. But I didn't find anything inside the carriage or any of the ideas they talked about particularly interesting. But that's just me. I don't know. I, I, I'd have to disagree with you because I think the each of the, the three characters in the carriage along with the bounty hunters. So we've got like a um, an old lady who uh, is supposed to be or she thinks that she's going to yes. reunite with her husband yeah. who she hasn't seen uh, for a number of years. And then you've got a French gambler type character who – tells a story about how he got into a disagreement over uh, over a particular card game that he was playing. Yeah, he was the um, best. And then you've got a trapper character who, you know, who's, who's hilarious. I mean, because he he's pr- initially presented as being like a simpleton who just lives in the wild and, you know, hunts animals. Um, but it, he speaks in a very educated kind of mannered way for uh, a guy who's supposed to be a crazy person. Um, so there's, there's some interesting character details in there. But I think each of those three characters tells a story that could be interpreted as being the last thing that happened to them before they died suddenly. Because mm-hmm. like the the gambler, it sounds like he was kind of murdered over some disagreement that he was having at a card table. And the old woman dropped dead before she could reunite with her husband, seemingly of like a illness or a heart attack or something. And the trapper just died probably because he like, I don't know, fell off a cliff or something. <laughs> um, but, they, but they've all convinced themselves or they've all told themselves a story that they're getting into a carriage to go somewhere else. Interesting. So so what do you make of the actual dead body, the actual corpse? I think that's a red herring. I think that's a, that's in there to kind of uh, lead the audience astray, to kind of make us think that something else is going on. And it might also be in there to kind of, maybe there is no dead body in there. Maybe that's just what the bounty hunters say to those three passengers to kind of mm-hmm. give them a reason why they're there. I have to say, though, like Brendan Gleeson and... Uh, John Joe O'Neill, I believe his name is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they they really have this charisma about them, like a sort of, but it's a dangerous kind of charisma. Yeah. Where, and yeah. they start talking about whacking people while they're being distracted, and you kind of wait for that thump but it never really comes. Yeah, yeah. There's some there's some uh, some nice scripting on the go and there's some nice performances. Uh, yeah. So, I don't know. I think that I think that segment might improve with future viewings. It's mm-hmm. uh it's pretty densely packed uh with uh with information. In terms of like the release of this movie, like will a lot of people see it? Will it get very much attention? Probably not, but uh definitely if you're if you're listening to this episode and it sounds like the kind of thing that you might like, definitely go Give it a watch, because um, I think uh, uh, it could be like a little hidden gem amongst the the many Netflix originals that uh, they get uploaded every every week, I guess. But then, um, but jumping from a Netflix into the movie theaters, because <laughs> I just got back from Spider Man into the Spider Verse. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Miles Morales. Brooklyn! I'm the one and only Spider Man. At least that's what I thought. You ever hear of a super collider? You're gonna love this. Dimension opening now. You're like me. That's impossible. How closely were you following the kind of uh, the buzz leading into this movie? Very close. Very close? Okay. Because I didn't know it was even like in production until the trailer hit a few months ago. And Oh, okay. Um, I was very skeptical the first time I saw the animation, actually. Oh, really? I had heard about this project, yeah, and I saw... I saw the pictures and I was like, oh, it's interesting that they're doing cell shaded. But cell shaded animation has traditionally, I think, never really sold well on the big screen. I don't even think 
anyone's really attempted that kind of animation on the big screen. Um, but anyway, like I, I kept an eye on the reviews and obviously like they were all fantastic. Yeah. And I mean, I can confirm it is, is probably one of the best movies of the year. Um, certainly the best like superhero slash comic book movie of the year. And that might seem like too high praise or unexpectedly high praise, but it's definitely merited because this is one of the only movies I've seen based on a comic book or within the superhero genre that fully taps into the craziness, the, the, the wackiness of comics. It's so like willing to, uh, to feature strange spinoff characters and embrace the kind of the bold, crazy lines and typography like uh, text bubbles and insane visuals that we all recognize from comics, but that often get kind of trimmed out or made more realistic when a comic book gets adapted for the screen. Um, the only other movie that I can think of recently that comes close to what Spider-Verse is doing um, is probably Thor Ragnarok, just in the the kind of colors and the, the way it's written. Um, but Spider-Verse takes what Thor Ragnarok was doing and kind of turns it up crazy high. It is, yeah, it's it's fantastic. Uh, everyone should see it. Everyone should see it multiple times. Um, Explain the plot to me. Is it an origin story? It is kind of an origin story, but it's not, you know, it, the, the term origin story has become a bit of a kind of a dirty one in recent years, especially with uh, superhero franchises getting rebooted uh, pretty frequently, like within a, a one franchise, especially in the in the sense that, you know, we think of an origin story as like a movie that takes up the full runtime with uh, the character coming into their powers and learning how to harness them and then, you know, setting up a potential sequel in the closing minutes of the movie. This one does do that, but it doesn't get too bogged down in the structure. So it's uh, it follows Miles Morales, who in the comics was introduced as a, uh, a new Spider-Man from an alternate dimension in the comics. And of course, if you've spent any time reading either Marvel or DC comics, you'll know that both uh, major comics houses have all of these spinoff universes that they use to uh, kind of chase weird ideas that don't really work in the uh, the, al- the alpha universe, I guess you'd call it, or like the main version of the character that most people are familiar with. So Miles Morales was introduced a few years ago as a young Puerto Rican kid living in Queens, who, or in Brooklyn rather, who gets bitten by the radioactive spider and becomes Spider-Man but you know he he became like a real a, a real important um, uh, jumping off point for stories that were specific to like the Puerto Rican experience in New York, um, you know. Whereas the Peter Parker that most people are familiar with was always just a white guy. Uh, now we were seeing what Peter Parker's experience would be like um, through someone from a very different ethnic background. So that was kind of cool, and they finally put Miles Morales into a big theatrical movie in Spider-Verse and kind of look at what his family is like and what kind of struggles that he's dealing with as a kid. And then at the same time, they set up a uh, interdimensional plot where the Kingpin, voiced by, I think it's Liev Schreiber, wants to build this crazy, crazy device to reunite himself with uh, uh, his wife and son. And by building this interdimensional uh, laser device thing. He actually kind of smashes several d- dimensions together and causes Spider-Man from all these different weird universes to all land in uh, Miles Morales' universe. 
and they all have to team up to help Miles beat the Kingpin and reset everything back to the way it was. Cool. I can't wait, actually. It's just so nuts. Like, uh, in the first few minutes, like, you get a real taste of just how kinetic and colorful the visuals are going to be. I love how the whole world and the characters and the backgrounds have this kind of, uh, you know, that uh, halftone pattern that uh, people will immediately say is like the comic book look where it kind of looks like all colors, all panels of color are made up by a series of dots, okay. like a texture of dots. Uh-huh. That's the way, that's the kind of treatment that all the animation in the movie has, um, which is a very subtle detail, but it, it literally makes the whole thing look that much more like a living comic book. Because uh, it sounds like it's something... Um Scott Pilgrim versus the world did where they had like little, little like, uh, text boxes and whatnot. Yeah. So they do do it in, in Scott Pilgrim, but I feel like they do it like in a tongue in cheek way where they're, they're kind of throwing it in there almost as a, a comedic thing. But in this, it feels very much more part of the universe, especially because of that, that treatment with like the halftone pattern that you see across the whole world. Um, Scott Pilgrim is kind of like a, foremost a live action movie that has those kind of little flourishes tossed in occasionally but uh-huh. in spider-verse okay. it's through the whole thing um and i just like quick shout outs to like individual moments because uh, right. again like everyone should go see this for themselves <laughs> love 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 nicholas cage as spider noir that seems like a good fit too he's not he's not in it for like he doesn't have a lot of scenes but uh they the, like the the stuff about him brooding in a world where it's dark all the time and it's raining and even the wind smells like rain. <laughs> bitter, bitter anguish fills the air. It's like that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Wonderful. Um, Spider-Ham, voiced by uh, John Mulaney. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a, like a crazy idea. Like they literally have a comic. There's a Spider-Man comic from uh, a couple of decades ago where it's literally set in a cartoon world where Peter mm-hmm. Porker is a spider who's bitten by a radioactive pig and turns into a... Uh, a pig-shaped superhero who looks like Spider-Man and wears a Spider-Man suit. Perfect. Uh, so just like, just totally out there, but so fun. And then we even have like uh, Gwen Stacy as her version of uh, Spider-Woman. Spider-Gwen. Yeah, Spider-Gwen. Um, and she's great. She's voiced by Haley Steinfeld. So there's uh, they, they give her a little bit more attention than some of the other versions of the, uh, the Spider-People, which is nice because then she has a nice rapport with... Uh, uh, with Miles and then with the uh, uh, with another version of Peter Parker who pops up. He's kind of like an older Peter Parker who's gotten a bit fat and doesn't really care about the job anymore. Um, but both and then between Gwen and Miles and Peter Parker, each one has a very nicely defined arc that uh, that I really like. And you just uh, you get to the end and you're like, oh, yeah, OK, there's a there's a lot of catharsis there. Which is kind of a segue into like our next topic, which is actually um, kind of a 2018 roundup. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I can confidently say that Spider-Verse is probably going to be in my my final top 10 when we wrap everything up uh, beginning of the new year. I haven't seen it yet, but I have a feeling I'll have the same kind of reaction. So maybe I'll run down quickly, like, my current leaderboard, um, and then you can tell me if I'm totally nuts. You're nuts. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's see here. I've got... Spider-Verse, obviously. Uh-huh. And this is in no order, by the way. Like, yeah, I guess I could sort it by chronological order, but this is just sort of how things popped into my head. Um, then I've got Annihilation, 
from Alex Garland that came out back in March of this year. Uh-huh. The Natalie Portman sci-fi film. Yeah, that one's super underrated. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm going to be recommending that to people for the next, like, five years for sure. Um, <laughs> and then I've got uh, Mission Impossible Fallout, obviously. Uh-huh. huge, Excellent. Hugely fun. Um, and then Isle of Dogs, Wes Anderson. Naturally, I wouldn't be like true to myself if I didn't uh, have this year's Wes Anderson film on my list. If you could see my face right now, Rob. I know you're upset. It's just, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I will say I'm not, I'm not ruling out knocking I Love Dogs to like an honorable mention to like number 11 if the next couple of weeks have like a lot of fantastic stuff in it. But I think the farthest it will fall is number 11. Okay. And then for some of the other ones, I've got Widows uh-huh. from Steve McQueen, Eighth Grade, uh, the Bo Burnham film from, uh, uh, I think it was August. Okay. Uh, First Man. And then a couple of weird ones, Nonfiction, which is an Olivier Assayas film that I saw at TIFF. Very French, very literary. People will probably call me a huge snob for including it in my top 10, but uh, it's there for now. <laughs> And then the final one, uh, and this is a movie that I think technically, I think it's a, it's a 2017 release on Letterboxd, but it didn't get any kind of theatrical release until this year. Like I did, it didn't hit uh, movie theaters in Canada until uh-huh. uh, March and that's uh, thoroughbreds, right? Just a, a crazy, a, a strange thriller with some very interesting uh, music. Uh, the music is a big standout in that one and a kind of a thriller in the old school 1980s, 1990s thriller mold. So, uh, uh, so definitely worth checking out. But uh, do you have a do you have a top ten? I don't really have a top ten, but because uh, thank you for springing me on this for like five minutes before we record. <laughs> I'll say a couple names and you keep like a running tally of how many I have. I'll try and keep count. Too. Okay, okay. So I'm kind of going it in chronological order as best as I can. But uh, Black Panther, Annihilation. Avengers Infinity War. Okay. Mission Impossible Fallout. Black Klansman. Shoplifters. Uh, the Favorite. Burning. Creed 2. How many is that? That's nine. That's nine? I, I don't want to just give away this spot, but there's not... I don't know if there's a clear cut number 10 maybe first man but at first man is definitely outside my top 10 by the end of the year it's gonna be outside my top 10 100 yeah yeah and with i think mine is gonna change a lot as well like uh, again these are just the ones that we've seen up until yeah. the day that we're recording this pod um, yeah but but yeah. widows would be there but i mean that's like borderline number 10 too so it's kind of similar Two foreign films, yeah, a couple. Yeah, yeah. Thought about including The Favorite because I just saw that um, two days ago uh-huh. uh, for the first time. And I really liked it. Like, I gave yeah, it... It's funny, eh? I gave it like 4.5 out of 5. And I might, you know, when, when we revisit these, I might very well swap it in for, for something like... I might swap it in for maybe Roma or maybe nonfiction. I don't know, but... Uh, right, Roma. I, yeah, I forgot to add that to the letterbox. But, like, even something like... Black Klansman. I, I feel like um, for me, Black Clans, oh, not Black Clans, Black Panther. I feel like Black Panther, like over the course of time, would be less attractive to me because then I'll start pointing out things I didn't really like, and I'll feel like, oh, this is overrated because everyone likes it. Yeah. But it just like it kept staying with me, and now I just like I can't deny it. Mm. Um, that's kind of the same with Annihilation, where it was really good to begin with, but then like. 
the more like the year went on, it just kind of like, it was like the one film that I kept kind of thinking back to a little bit. Mm hmm. Because there are a lot of films this year that I've forgotten came out this year, like Ready Player One, oh, yeah. Pacific Rim Uprising, A Wrinkle in Time, Incredibles 2 even, I felt like was kind of a while ago, Sicario 2, like some of these just, uh, it, it kind of fades away. Um, Sorry to Bother You felt like a long time ago too. I also thought about including Sorry to Bother You in mine because it's so out there and so like different from yeah. the, the typical stuff that we see, but I couldn't... Uh, you know, I, I only gave it like four out of five on Letterboxd, so I didn't really feel, mm-hmm. you know, I felt that there were enough flaws in it that I can't really in good conscience put yes. it all, all the way up with the others in, in the top ten. There is a film that I thoroughly enjoyed, but would kind of pay me to put it in my top ten because it just reeks of personal bias. What is that? Venom. <laughs> oh, jeez. I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed that film. I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, I mean, you know. Um, but like I said, like, if as you know, a quote unquote serious film critic. I, I just can't have that in my top 10 because there's so many things I can point out that are just not very well done or just, I think, um, fails in certain aspects of have of like being a good story. Yeah. What do you think are the chances that like that you might go see Aquaman this weekend or, or next week and uh, and it would end up finding a finding a slot? Oh, well, if it finds a slot, it's be, be it'd be because it had the same impact as me as Venom, mm-hmm. where like I go in there and I turn my brain off for two hours and I thoroughly enjoy like the experience. Yeah, but I I can kind of tell from Aquaman like certain origin stories don't really interest me. Um, no matter how well done they are, I always feel like the second film is better. Tough to say. I think Aquaman's gonna have his own like little spinoff franchise, right? The DC universe definitely needs some wins, and I feel like. You know, they can't go, they, they can't do completely uh, terribly by taking what's probably the best character from their most recent movie, Justice League, and giving him a whole movie. I mean, right. You know, um, it's he's the most enjoyable part of that movie. And if they can, if they can sustain a whole franchise around mm-hmm. him, so much the better. Yeah. I mean, just let it go. Like, it's, it's kind of interesting to see how DC is more successful with characters that aren't as um, popular or mainstream, say, as Batman and Superman. Yeah. Characters where they could have a little fun with, take a little more risk. With Batman and Superman, I realize they want to make good films, but it seems like they like constrict themselves of wanting to portray them in a certain way that satisfies both fanboys and kind of becomes like this cash cow that they want it to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with Aquaman, I I mean, it's a big bet. They spent a lot of money on it, but it almost comes to fans with a clean slate where you, you don't really know much about the character and they can show you this character and be like, here it is. Here is how it's going to be. And sometimes it works and it looks like they've, I mean, they did hit big with Wonder Woman, but it looks like they might hit big with Aquaman too. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I still have no idea where the franchise, where the, where the whole like filming universe is headed, but, um, you know, how many of the rumors about reboots to the characters are true or not, you know, we'll have to see. Um, but that, that does sort of lead us into, you know, looking at, looking at what we've currently selected as our top 10 and then what's coming out towards the end of the year. Um, we do. Oh, sorry. I have one more. Oh, really? Ralph breaks the internet. That was really good. But you're going to put in your top 10. Maybe that's mm. borderline. Okay. But okay. Sorry. Anyway, um, I had to throw that out there. No. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, uh, you know, for that Disney princess scene alone, it, as we mentioned on the previous episode, you know, it is, it is pretty strong. Right. But no, the looking, looking to what's still to come, 
you know, we've got Aquaman coming out this weekend, uh, along with uh, the movie that I've been curious about for a couple of months, but I've always been pretty confident is going to suck. And that's uh, Welcome to Marwin from Robert Zemeckis. Uh, I've heard that sucked. The early buzz is that it's just dreadful. Like it's it's Zemeckis falling prey to uh, all of his previous temptations to to f- you yeah know, he he's focus a- on these like these CGI characters that uh, that do, with the whole uncanny valley thing and like just being creeped out by CGI characters. He's he's always struggled with that. He's in the same boat as James Cameron, yeah, big time. They're they're innovators, not storytellers. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, and it, like. He, you know, he's been doing this for, for a while now. And like, he did it with Beowulf. He did it with Polar Express. Polar Express. Um, You know, parts of me still like the like train sequences from Polar Express, uh, but the, the actual like character animation is still off-putting. Yes. And yeah, he's just like, he seems to think that there's uh, there's an appetite for these poorly rendered or not poorly rendered, but like for long sequences that focus entirely on these characters when it's not like a true animation. I don't know. It's hard to describe. It, it probably sounds really good in a pitch meeting. Yeah. But when it translates onto the screen, you feel like you, you kind of start realizing that visually it just looks a little awkward or, or unsettling. Yeah. But, uh, but what I heard is that it's the story that is really, really compelling, but Robert Zemeckis was really bad at telling. Yeah. It. The treatment is just really poor. And like it, it would yeah. already been previously, you know, told in a documentary format in a, in a very well, uh, received documentary, mm-hmm. um, called Marwin call, which is about the, you know, it, it, it features interviews with the real guy. So I think there's the, this movie is also running up against a, a bit of a challenge there where they're trying to prove, prove the, that they can add value mm-hmm. quote unquote, uh, to what was already done really well in documentary. But it's funny though, that the studio decided to give it a big prestige Christmas release in an effort to, uh, to get some extra eyeballs on it. Well, I mean, I gotta say like, Steve Carell is actually quite a good um, dramatic actor. Oh, he is. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. no shade on him. I mean, I, I feel like he, he seems like he would be well cast in the role, but I don't know. It's that, it's that animated treatment that's uh, for those certain sequences. That's probably going to trip it up. Um, and then what else we, we've got vice obviously, which I'm super excited for. I, I, I it's, it's odd for me to, to hear me say that out loud because I remember before the big short came out, I was very skeptical of Adam McKay doing anything with a remotely serious topic, but, mm-hmm. uh, that's probably like, you know, he's a household name now. Yeah. He proved himself with the big short. He proved that he, that he has this kind of this strategy that he takes with uh, talking about real life events with a kind of fourth wall breaking satirical tone it tells the story, but does it in a way that's different from your average biopic. Yeah, it works really well because he tackles these like true life events and then he kind of spins them into like a very cynical but funny way. Yeah. Um, he, he's he's really made a career out of doing this. I kind of wonder if he's typecast a little. I would be very... It does Has he announced his next project yet? No, I don't think so. The um... Yeah, I'd be surprised if he tackles some, something similar in his for his... Uh, next project you would be surprised or you wouldn't be surprised yeah i i would be surprised okay because i feel like maybe it's i think he himself maybe wants to do something different yeah apparently he was there was a rumor floating around that he was offered like a big uh studio franchise film like star wars or marvel or something but he turned it down well it wasn't it guardians of the galaxy oh was that what it was okay i think it was yeah so 
I mean, I would be kind of surprised if he leapt that far to like the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty big jump. Yeah, exactly. But uh, I I would be surprised if he tackles like a real life event uh, movie again. It's time for him to, at least from my perspective, for him to branch out and do something else to see. I like to see him do something else. Yeah, because he's very he's obviously talented enough to cross genres. So, oh, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm wondering how far he can push that. And then uh, what else do we have for the rest of the month? Bumblebee. I always forget that's coming out. (laughs) (laughs) Really? It's it's on TV everywhere. Like every other commercial. I I don't know. Something about it. It's it's just because because it's like you just don't like Transformers. Well, I don't know. Um, yeah, you're just weird. <laughs> like the only guy in the world who doesn't like cars and robots. I don't like them in this format. I just don't get it. <laughs> what I don't like you the, get? They're robots in disguise. I know, but they did. It's right there in it the tagline. I, I, like, I'm pretty sure you go back to Roger Ebert's review of the original Transformers, and he kind of he essentially points out that like there's no physical way for a robot of that size to fit inside the chassis of a car when it transforms. And for me, it's that's like. It's equivalent to the whole Cars universe. The more you think about Cars, like the original being the cartoon or the first Michael Bay film? The first Michael Bay film. Actually, there's a documentary, I think, about how they worked together with Hasbro to to make it so that the robots fit into the car somehow. Like it takes a bit of a stretch of imagination. Sure. And and I get it. I mean, it's a fictional universe and stuff. But um, for me, it's just like you think too much about Transformers and I end up I end up in the same headspace as I am with Pixar's Cars movies where you you end up thinking about like why are there ambulances in the cars universe why are there school buses <laughs> there is no humans did the humans all die is it post apocalyptic do cars have sex do those are there baby cars like your brain my brain just goes on on a on a like a downward spiral trying to work it out logically and I, and i end up doing the same thing with transformers and i'm like there's no world in which any of this makes any sense, and I just can't get oh, over come it. Come on. It makes more sense than cars. <laughs> I'm just excited because it's Travis Knight. Well, and it's getting, it is getting 94%. So that's 90. Whoa, really? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, there's, there's something to like in there. I just probably won't see it in theaters. Well, that's because Travis Knight is awesome, man. I trust with him with any freaking material. I am going to see the Mary Poppins reboot because I watched that enough as a kid that I have a, I have a strong <laughs> okay. nostalgia trip going on there. Yeah, so that's a that's a funny one because uh, that's a movie my mom introduced me to. Oh, really? And yeah, and I like for for the longest time when I was a kid, I just like I refused to watch it. I was just like I'm not interested in watching a musical like that. But then I watched Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. I loved it. Okay, and so I think I think I watched Mary Poppins after. And my mom was always a huge fan. And the trailer came on one day, and I was like, "Hey, mom, look, look, they brought back Mary Poppins." And then right away, she's just like. It's not going to be as good as the original. I don't want to see it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, you're probably right. But, you know, do you want to give it a chance? Like, I mean, it looks kind of interesting. And she's like, no, no, not really. And then, then there's a part in this trailer where, um, was it Lin-Manuel Miranda and like a bunch of chimney sweepers? Like they start dancing down the street, kind of like how Dick Van Dyke did. Sure. And then she's just like, ah, oh, it's the same thing. I don't want to see this. <laughs> and I was like, all right. Yeah. I mean. Takes a, takes a lot to impress my mom these days. Okay. She, uh, she like, she's flat out refused to watch The Last Jedi just because she didn't like The Force Awakens so much. Well, that's, I mean, I don't want to open that can of worms again, <laughs> but I think she's wrong. Well, she's, she, well, she doesn't like the, she doesn't like the first, uh, the prequel, the one, two, three. Okay. Either. But those aren't okay. The, but this is a rabbit hole, but like the, those you cannot. You can't. <laughs> well, she, okay. Her main gripe about The Force Awakens is like, 
she she didn't really like um Finn that right. character and she just felt like A New Hope was a better film and to her like the films were pretty much the same. So. All right. All right. Which is kind of my criticism too, but like like mother my like son I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the the uh, the other movie that is uh is set to hit with this big like dump of uh Christmas prestige movies is uh the Ruth Bader Ginsburg biopic on the basis of sex. Oh, that looks so It looks generic very generic and, and- PG-13. I mean, it's worth mentioning just because it's it's part of this kind of crowd of of Christmas movies. Um, I don't know if it's going to go anywhere. If uh, Felicity Jones will get no much way. Oscar no attention, way. It, but, like the competition's um, too stiff. This the year. RB, the cult of RBG is pretty big, though. I mean, there's there's enough people oh, out there who will just don't see get it. me wrong. Ginsburg is amazing. I I read about her and I I follow her a bit in the news. And she she looks she sounds like an amazing woman, but like that movie just. I will never ever do her justice. And I think it's just a cheap knockoff of your, you know, run of the mill biopic, but maybe I'm overly harsh, but that's the feeling I get and I'm not necessarily interested. Um, But yeah, it's weird. We are closing. We do seem to be closing the month on, uh, on a pretty strong note Uh, overall. Like there's, uh, there's some fun stuff, some Oscar bait stuff. Um, So we'll have to, Catch up on all of that. Spend entirely too much time in the dark away from our families. I'm fine with that. Uh, instead of instead of Christmas. <laughs> but yeah, and then we'll we'll do a proper official rundown of the uh, uh, of our top ten of uh, 2018 in the uh, the first episode of the new year. Really, first episode? We're gonna do it right away. I don't know. It depends when we when we finally get around to it. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair um, enough. Well, I was gonna um, do like a preview awards episode, but. We- and then name our top 10 there, but that's fine. Okay. Well, to be determined, but, uh, but yeah, that about does it for this episode. I mean, we uh, definitely want to thank everybody who's been listening over the past year. We've, uh, Jason and I have got some plans for uh, some new formatting, some new segments, maybe a a shorter runtime for, uh, for the episodes. So we're going to be doing some experimentation uh, with the, uh, the first episodes in the new year, I think. Yeah. We're looking forward to that. Uh, But head on over to kinetoscope.ca where uh and we haven't posted anything in the past uh, past few weeks but uh <laughs> <laughs> we're just terrible terrible at it um, <laughs> no, we, we just have uh, stuff going on. Yeah, we're, we're busy on. guys, man. Like, you don't, don't, <laughs> don't hold us to any of your expectations. But we definitely should do regular, like have a set schedule. Yes. Of some kind. Yes, yeah. Um, so, but there will be some stuff coming out in the uh, the next couple of days. Of probably a review of uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, a review of The Mule, the new uh, Clint Eastwood film. And uh, definitely as the, uh, the month comes to an end and we catch up on all the aforementioned uh, releases, we'll, uh, we'll have some, uh, some coverage of that as well. But yeah, until the new year, my name is Robert Snow in Toronto. And my name is Jason Chen in Vancouver. Thanks for listening. 